At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 488th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is dedicated to documenting the many unique aspects in seed varieties. We're talking with returning guest Chris Smith about saving seed diversity. Chris, is an author, garden blog writer, and homesteading consultant. In 2018, while writing his book, The Whole Okra, he grew out 76 varieties of okra as research. In many ways, this research fed the Utopian Seed Project to take root and grow. Based in Asheville, North Carolina, the Utopian Seed Project is a hands-in-the-earth organization committed to research trials on crop varieties in the southeast to support diversity in food and farming. They're working toward an overarching vision to support food security in the face of climate change through diverse and regenerative agriculture. Chris, we got to meet you in podcast 468 back in August when we talked about your book. Welcome back to the show today. Are you ready to rock seed diversity? I'm ready. Excellent. So when we had you on our podcast last, you talked about your project, the Utopian Seed Project. And I said, wow, we need to have you back. So tell us about it. Yeah, it's it's a pretty exciting project, really. It's, it's brand new this year, so we should acknowledge that. We've got a lot a lot of stuff to do. But our, our basic idea, as you said in the introduction, came from the okra trials I did last year. We, we effectively grew all those different okras, and we it was kind of a screening observational trial, so we were recording data about them and taking photographs. But we also had the opportunity to take those varieties and really give them to local chefs, local businesses, local gardeners, farmers, and we really celebrated okra through this kind of really rich community of people that were willing to experiment. So we took that model and we're like, well, we can do that with all these other crops because people got so excited and invested in okra. We're like, well, let's get people excited and invested about the diversity that's available in everything else. And so that's kind of where the Utopian Sea Project came from. Got it. And what is the intent behind the Utopian Seed Project? I think that the, the main intent is to really enrich our local food system and the way we want to do that is by educating, celebrating this vast diversity in all the different crop types and varieties within those crop types. But we want to base it on this real uh, kind of hands-in-the-earth primary research. So we feel like we don't just want to go out there and celebrate okra. We want to grow the okra and get serious about okra and then be, have this really strong foundation to say, you know, we, we know what we're talking about, about okra. You should listen to us and, and join this movement towards a diverse food system. Yeah. So we talked about your book on the last podcast, number 468, and it was 
all about okra. And most people are going to say okra. Ooh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about okra and why you decided to grow out 76 varieties. That's almost mind-blowing to me. Yeah, I think okra is probably, I, I think of it as my champion crop in a lot of this work I'm doing around seed diversity and and I guess culinary diversity as well. That's, that's a big part of this project. So the, the okra was interesting because it, it has so much potential and so much of that potential is unrealized. Uh, at least that's what I found when I came to America about six years ago and started growing more of these southern crops. I was just astounded by how awesome okra was and how underappreciated it was at the same time. So the idea behind growing all those varieties was really to kind of just kind of slap people in the face and go, look, you need to take this vegetable a little more seriously because there's, there's so much fun to be had within it. It's not just this one variety that you find growing all over America. There's so much so much potential there. So I really just wanted to go big, I guess. You know, if I was going to celebrate okra, I wanted to do it properly. Yeah. So how on earth did you find 76 varieties of okra? Well, let's just stop right there. Last year, I grew 76 varieties of okra. This year, as part of the Utopian Sea Project trials, I have an entirely different 50 varieties in the ground. So we're now at over 125 varieties of okra (laughs) that have been trialed over the last two years. My access, I, I work for a small seed company in Asheville called So True Seed, and they've been very supportive about my work and have been instrumental in setting up this nonprofit and giving me the opportunity to do that. So I'm, I'm grateful to them. And through that seed company, we, we get sent seeds from old-time seed savers. We go to seed swaps and collect varieties that way. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a good starting point. There's a few other awesome seed companies that supported me in that okra project, Baker's Creek, Seed Savers Exchange, Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, all these companies were willing to send me their entire collections. So that really bolstered the amount of varieties I was able to begin with. And then for about three or four years, I've been going to my, on my own personal journey and kind of collecting seeds at seed swaps and that kind of thing. And, and actually just more recently, I've started getting enough of a reputation that he's the crazy guy growing all those okras and people have started mailing me their own okra varieties. <laughs> nice. collected. So the collection is continuing to grow, and it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. Wow. All right, cool. So what did you find in your first trials of okra? What did you learn? One of the really fun things we did, because, because flavor is so important to us, we did a, a taste test. So not only did we go, hey, we're growing all these varieties of okra, we invited the local community to come out to the trial site. And actually, at the main trial site, we only had 60 varieties of okra growing. So we had a taste test for those 60 varieties. And, and even just the layout, like 60 different pods on a table, yeah. is, is kind of mind-blowing. But it, it really raised this interesting question of how, how do you possibly taste test and work out the nuances of these different varieties when you, know, you can eat the first pod and go, mm, that's kind of tasty. And the second one, you're like, oh, okay, that's better than the first one. But by the time you get to pod five, you have no idea what pod one what was all about. Like. Yeah. And we have 60 pods. So this was in 2018, and I'm British, and football, soccer is a, is a thing. So the, the World Cup was happening, and we had this idea to do a, a World Cup-style elimination taste test, where we put all the different okra varieties into groups, random group selection like the World Cup, and then each individual only had to taste four varieties and pick the best two varieties to progress to the next round. Oh. And then we regroup them into small groups. And then, you know, again, the, the finalists will go through to the next round. And we did that until we had just two remaining okra varieties. 
Uh-huh. And everyone tasted both varieties in the room, and there was unanimous consent that one variety was like the supreme okra. In, uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, so that was, that was pretty exciting to kind of go through that process and really go, actually, this, this okra, it's sweet, it's nutty, it's good texture, it's, it, you know, everything was good about this okra. And that's so important for the trial because now we're able to go to farmers and say, hey, you know, everyone's selling Clemson Spineless. And I don't have anything against Clemson Spineless, but everyone's selling Clemson Spineless. So how about trying these varieties? Because they were our top 10 varieties in the taste test. And I'm pretty sure if you take them to chefs, then they'll be all about this improved flavor. And then we can really build uh, an improved food system from that, that angle too. Yeah, wow. That's a brilliant idea. You know, British are onto something. <laughs> there you go. So okra, anything more about okra before we move on? You know, we've spoken before. There's a lot we could say about okra, but I, I do want everyone to know that the, the, the Utopian Sea Project is more than just an okra project. We're, we're taking the okra concept and applying it to lots of other crops. So maybe, maybe we should speak about those two. Well, we'll get there in a minute. Absolutely. Have you done a trial and elimination on anything other than okra yet? We haven't done the taste test this year. So no, we've not done an elimination taste test. Got it. Uh, so uh, only the okra. You know, the, the surprising thing, which I, I kind of feel a little guilty admitting that this was a surprise, but I went into that trial last year with a, a, a vague concern that, you know, maybe, maybe all these varieties of okra really are just subtle iterations of the main Clemson Spineless or Red Burgundy. And they've just, you know, maybe it's just different families putting their own name on the okra, but it's really the same okra. Mm-hmm. So I, I was a little bit worried that I might just end up with 76 different green pods that were all pretty much the same. But to walk into that variety trial, I had six plants of 60 different varieties in my main trial. Uh It was just, it was phenomenal. It was like you just blasted by the diversity within that field. There was, you know, the the tall and the short and the thick and the thin and heavy branched and no branched and wide leaves and small leaves and then coloration from reds to greens to pale whites. Um, and that's before you even got into the differences within the pods themselves. Right. So that it was surprising to me, or it was maybe like a, a surprising relief to me to go, oh, yes, there, there really is true diversity within this species. Well, and it sounds like there was an amazing amount of diversity. Yeah, I, I, very, very few plants were the same. A lot, of, a lot of diversity for sure. Wow, cool. All right, so what other things are you trialing now? With this nonprofit, I, I have a small board supporting me, and we, we had a chat about what we should do, and we, we kind of identified three focus areas. One was to continue on the path of really highlighting and spotlighting varietal diversity within southern crops. So that led to us doing more okra. We're doing a cowpea trial, 40 different varieties of cowpeas, which is really awesome to see because most people just talk about the black-eyed pea but there's, there's way more to it than that. So that's in action right now. We're doing a heritage bean project, which was really fun because we, um, I invited local seed savers to contribute like their favorite variety or two to the trial. So that's a really all-over-the-show trial just because we've got so many different seed savers in this region giving their favorite, favorite varieties. And I have a, a corn trial. There's a, a really cool... A Cherokee seed saver called Stephen Smith. I think he has over 2,000 varieties of corn in his mm-hmm. collection. Wow. And so I'm just starting to work with him, and he sent me 12 of his varieties to begin trialing. Awesome. So that's kind of like the varietal diversity 
within Southern Crop's aspect. But we're also doing this really cool thing, which is kind of inspired by Jana Fishman, who's on the board, which is kind of taking tropical perennials and trying to grow them as temperate annuals in Western North Carolina. So this has already been done successfully for years with things like sweet potatoes, right. but we're doing it with taro, we're testing out chayote, uh, we have yacon, which is the Bolivian sunroot, turmeric and ginger and arrowroot. So all, all these tropicals that can be grown as temperate annuals in our region and really widen the, the food sources available to us. And potentially in terms of, you know, our warming climate, one could argue it's not a bad bet to start working out how to grow some of these tropicals as we're all experiencing uh, increased weather events. Right. Well, a bunch of those that you mentioned are root crops. So True. One, yeah. would, one would think that would make them a little bit easier to grow there? Yeah. Well, so the one that gives you is, is two options. Because it's a root crop, you can leave it in the ground a little bit longer yep. to get the root root maturity, which means when you harvest that root, it's much easier to carry the root through to the next season yeah. than to expect a seed to mature. Because we, we don't want to set up a system where every year we have to rely on buying seeds from the tropics to be able to then grow them again. We really want to set up a full cycle system. So that's where all these root crops come into play because even things like ginger doesn't get to full maturity, but it gets mature enough that you can carry it over the winter and then re-sprout your own crop and set up this really sustainable cycle. So that's, that's a good thing. And then also for food potential, some of these roots get absolutely huge. And a lot of them don't have the disease pressures of our current root crops like potatoes. So like taro, for example, the taro calms are delicious, full of protein. Taro seems to grow really well around here and doesn't have the disease pressures that we're experiencing with potatoes right now. So I think a lot of exciting potential in terms of food security for some of those crops. Yeah, one of the things I noticed is that the sweet potatoes here at the urban farm, you know, I harvest some every year, but they just come back year after year without me harvesting them and then replanting them. Are you finding that you can do that with some of your other things? Do you know yet? So taro seems to be one of those that has that potential. That seems to be able to overwinter and regrow. We don't experience that with sweet potatoes in Western North Carolina. It, it sends down those like secondary tubers from its nodes, but they never get very big and they never survive the winter. Mm. So we, we, we don't have that going on with sweet potatoes. I think there's potential for it to happen with some of the other crops. And, and sweet potatoes, like one of our board members, she has over 100 varieties of sweet potatoes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and, and they're just beautiful to see not just all the different root crop potential, but again, we're talking about culinary diversity. One of them, we have a farmer experimenting with all the different leaf types, and he's supplying sweet potato leaves to chefs this year, and they're getting really excited about the ones with red in them and the ones that are way more pointy than lobed and and that kind of thing. Awesome. In almost 500 episodes, I don't know that I've had this deep of a conversation about seed diversity with anybody. And, you know, we've had Bill McDormand from uh, Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance on many times. We do a monthly chat. So this is a really cool conversation. Well, I like to think that we're kind of grounded in setting up this this playground by just planting so many different things. And then we can just go in and have a lot of fun. And then by collaborating with all these local businesses and chefs, 
then everybody else gets to join in that fun. And I, I really think, you know, we've got some serious times ahead and I'm very much aware of that, but I don't think we're going to get lots of people on board as quickly as we need to if we take the serious route. We need to get people to start enjoying food, enjoying food diversity, appreciating that local seasonal food is the way forward. And, and we're doing that by celebrating food, not by being too serious about it. <laughs> there you go. So you mentioned cow peas, and I actually have a Rio Red cow pea that I grow out here at the urban farm. And it's not all that edible. You know, when the, when the beans are small, you know, like two inches long, they're, you know, they're edible. But once they get bigger, they get rough. And so that's my experience of cow peas. And the reason we grow them is to build soil and... Uh-huh to actually shade the soil. They grow really well in the summertime and they shade the soil from the sun. So what? tell me about cowpeas. Well, cowpeas, one is they've got like the most incredible root system, which is why they're so drought tolerant and make a really good summertime cover crop. Mm-hmm. They also have extra floral nectaries. So they become a really good like food source for a wide range of pollinators as well. So you can have it as a beneficial attractant in your garden. But then the, the food potential... People tend to eat it in three stages. They'll eat the, the green pod. And do you know, have you ever grown the asparagus bean or the, the long-seeded asparagus bean? I haven't, but I want to now. Well, it's, it's interesting because that's always sold as a bean and you get these like one to two foot long pods. Wow. But it's actually in the same species as cow peas. So there's a lot, lot of pod variants and it sounds like you have a variety with a very short pod. But I've seen on my varieties already everything from those short style ones through to we're not growing any of the true yard long beans, they call them. But we we have some longer, skinnier pods that seem to stay tender longer and you can eat them as a cooked green bean. And then there's a shelling bean stage. So when they start getting the seeds forming, but they're still immature, you can shell them at that stage. And there's so much difference within those seeds. We're only just beginning to experiment with eating them, but some of them are relatively chalky and astringent and, and certainly not high culinary potential, but some of them are like eating green peanuts and that you, you just, you can just munch on them and they're absolutely divine. And then there's the third stage where you let them go all the way through to seed. That's probably the way a lot of people have interacted with cowpeas if they've not grown them themselves. And that dried seed stage, you can make them into tempehs, you can boil them up in, in soups and use it like you would any other drying bean. So there's a lot of pod potential there. Just because we're exploring everything, it turns out the leaves are edible and have a higher protein content than the pods. Oh, wow. And they've actually got this very unique flavor themselves. They have to be cooked, so don't run out there and munch on a cowpea leaf and then send me an angry letter. But you've, you've got to cook the greens, but if you get the real tender ones, the new shoots, and cook them up, just a very hard to describe something that you've not really eaten before and you're like, wow, this is different, but it's kind of a rich, earthy type of taste that's very pleasant. And just a few weeks ago, I made a cowpea leaf and black walnut pesto and took it to a class. And everyone, at least nobody told me to my face that they didn't like it. Everyone seemed to be very impressed with the flavors that came through in, in that particular preparation. Wow, man, you are so incredibly creative with all this. Good job. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Oh, but I, I want everybody else to be creative. You know, that's like, I, I feel like, why should we accept the norm that when you walk into a supermarket, there's only one variety of anything available? And why should we accept the norm that people only ever eat one part of a plant? 
if we can find out that it's edible and then we can find a culinary application, then, you know, let's start questioning the food system because it's not working right now. And um, I certainly don't want to operate in a vacuum. I want to get emails from everybody saying, hey, did you know I tried this? What about this? Have you thought about that? And I love it when I get that sort of conversation going with people. Yeah. So everybody listening out there, that was an invitation to say. That was an invitation. Yes. Excellent. Creativity is best achieved in in a large group. Yeah. Collaboration. I'm I'm completely with you. Talked about growing out the okras and the cowpeas, and we talked about growing out the tropicals. You have a third aspect about wild edibles. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, for sure. It turns out that we eat a very small amount of the food potential out there in the natural world. So there's a lot of wild edibles that exist. And part of the project is to look at those wild edibles and see if any of them can be kind of brought online to be, I guess, more more in line with agriculture and less with just wild foraging. So the example that we have in the ground this year is a pretty exciting one. It's the American groundnut, which is actually a, a legume that forms an underground tuba, again, a very high protein content. And you can find it all the way up and down the East Coast and in kind of the 1800 era text. It was described as the pea vine, which speaks to its legume heritage. It, it grows very small tubers, and they're on these long medallions. So it's kind of it would be a pain to to grow out on a on a bigger scale. Uh-huh. But in the 1980s, there was a Dr. Blackman did a lot of work at the University of Louisiana to develop larger tubers and more compact growth. And that program was ended prematurely before they got through to any sort of commercial release. But he kept that, all those cultivars that he developed, he kept growing when he left the university for about four decades. And just last year, he sent me 43 different cultivars of improved American groundnuts. It was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Some of these groundnuts are like the size of tennis balls, which if you are aware of the wild version, they're like the size of marbles. So it's like massive improvements. And this is the first year they're in the ground and it's all underground. So I have no idea. The top growth looks great. No idea what's happening underground. Very excited to dig them all up in November and see see what sort of potential we have there. But that, that's one example of these kind of wild crops that could potentially be used as a, a more mainline food source. Yeah. And, you know, I heard sometime over the past couple of years, I heard some rumors of a native potato that was being grown in the South. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't able to get a whole lot of information, but this sounds like that's what it is. It's possible. Yeah. I've, I've not come across a, a true native potato, but it, it's certainly potato-esque in, in its look and its shape and its protein and all that kind of thing. A totally different family. I could, I could see how that description would apply. Yeah. Well, when I type in American groundnut into Google, what I'm finding is what comes up is the potato bean. Potato bean. Yeah. It does get called the potato bean. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, it's a cool-looking plant. I may have to uh, talk you out of some and plant them here. Yeah. W- once we've harvested, we're happy to, to share some of that germaplasm. Yeah, it's a really cool vine. It produces a pod if you've got a long enough season, like a, a bean pod. So it's it's a pretty cool plant. Wow. So you can, wow. It, it produces something above the ground as well as below the ground? Yes. Yeah. But, but it's not clear yet whether in... Western North Carolina will actually get through to pod stage. That's something we're going to assess, like which varieties will produce viable seed in the first year of growth or whether it needs to survive a winter and become perennialized to produce the pod. That's a that's an open question. Well, and it sounds like 
it might grow just as well from the potato nut underground. Are you planting those? Yeah, so that's what we planted this year was tubers. So it was like potatoes. Mm. It was a it was a clonal propagation. So, so that in terms of breeding work, the fact that it does produce a seed means that each of those seeds has the potential to be a whole new cultivar. Right. So there's a lot of uh, expansive potential there if, if someone's got the space and the time to plant a whole bunch of seeds and then assess those tubers for varietal improvements. Wow. And you call your trials open source. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the, the open source aspect of it is it's kind of speaking to the open source seed initiative that was started up a few years ago, which is really trying to keep plant genetic material like open and free for everybody to use. It's, it's a very cool organization. If you've not come across it or your listeners haven't, they should check out the Open Source Seed Initiative. It's got very like kind of pure aims it, and it's kind of playing off the open source software industry, right. keeping code open to all so that we can all improve on that code and get better software. It's, it's the same idea with plant genetics, which is very opposite to the system of, of a lot of plant breeding work that happens at the moment in that that will become very, it'll either be patented or restricted usage in some way, shape, or form, which kind of narrows the pool of genetic material for crop improvement. And I would heavily argue that we want to widen the pool to have true diversity and true resilience in the future. Amen to that. So how can our listeners participate and play with you? Because it sounds like you're having lots of fun and we want to have fun too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So like I say, we're, we're a very new nonprofit. So we have a website up at the moment at the utopianseedproject.org. That's got a few ways to get involved. And that could be as simple as we've got a, a Patreon page that people can become just a monthly donor and that'll allow me to share material through a, a known network. We just like sharing stories with me and seeds is a great way because I'm really trying to be expansive and, and share outwards, but I would love people to share back. The website itself is going to be a, a profile piece for all these varieties we're growing. So because of last year, the okra page has the most information on it at the moment, and you'll see that every variety gets a profile. And then as we continue to do our trials, we'll update those profiles and hopefully it'll be a very rich information, like open source, you know, no paywalls on the website. Everything we learn, we will share so that other people can continue to to build on our work as well. Awesome. Well, you're doing great work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's, it's lots of fun, but I'm happy to have the opportunity to share it with everyone. Nice. So I'm going to shift on you. And as a returning guest, I would like for you to share a vivid childhood memory associated with food. Yeah. When that was first mentioned to me, it's so funny because the the, the memory that jumps into my head is is nothing to do with all these like pure, wonderful foods I'm talking about. But my mom just used to love to have baking days. And really one of my earliest childhood memories of, of food is is being in the kitchen with her and, and doing the whole childhood, like stirring this and making a mess with that and licking the spoon when I wasn't meant to type uh -huh. of thing. So right. very fun, fun memories with that, the whole British gingerbreads and biscuits and all that kind of thing. But my, my mom was a big time home gardener. So uh -huh. we did... We did grow up with lots of vegetables and good quality food, but it's the baking that stuck in my mind. Yeah, nice. And what one new piece of advice do you have for our listeners today? You know, I, I think we've covered it right all the way through this podcast, but I'll be very clear. My advice is to be open-minded and explorative in your culinary desires. And then, you know, if you're not buying it or growing it yourself, then put pressure, go into a restaurant and say, what variety is this? I think everyone should ask what variety is this because we should know the difference between one variety and the other or 
go into your local grocery store and say, I want to see more varietal diversity. Go and speak to your farmer's markets and say, why do you always just grow this one tomato that everyone else grows? There's so many options out there. You know, let's let's put pressure on the food system to satiate our own desires in culinary diversity. Nice. I love it. Let's put pressure on the food system to do this. I think we can do it. Absolutely. And thank you so much for joining us once again on the show today, Chris. My pleasure, Greg. Thank you. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, I, I've already given the website, theutopianseedproject.org. So that's a, a real easy way to get hold of me directly. There's a contact form on that website. I'm also trying to be pretty active on Instagram. It's a very visual medium, and I we're doing a lot of visual things with a lot of different varieties. So you can find us on Instagram with the handle, the Utopian Seed Project. And then we have the same handle, on Facebook. Excellent. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash utopian seed. And if you'd like to hear more from Chris, you can find our podcast 468 at urbanfarm.org forward slash okra. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.